Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the one that walked away from Omelis, Duncan Nickel. I'm made very uncomfortable by the implication that I am by process of elimination the one who did not walk away from Omelis. Thanks, Dunk. You're very welcome. Geordie, what are we doing here? We are a fantasy book club podcast. Every other week, you and I, my good pal Duncan, review a fantasy novel. So, this week, we're looking at The Ones Who Walked Away From Omelis, if you didn't guess by the intro, and the title of the mm-hmm. podcast episode you just clicked on, written by Ursula K. Le Guin, famous author, late, late and great, amazing work, most renowned for doing The Wizard of Ursi, that we've also covered on this podcast, and so many other incredible, um, both fantasy and science fiction works. One of my own personal favourites, The Left Hand of Darkness, has always stuck with me. And before we get stuck into our exploration of this very short story, Duncan, have you been reading anything else over the past two weeks? Essentially nothing. I will be quite honest. No, Jody, to oh, us, I kind of, I fell off the wagon. I say I fell off the wagon. I found another hobby and it took away all the time I normally spend reading. I recently picked Disgusting. up... Disgusting. I know. I went back to video games. I recently ah. picked up uh, Resident Evil to the remake and it's just absorbed any moments of free time i had i know jordy i feel bad but oh, it's so good it it was it's such a fun game in terms of horror i've not had that like adrenaline rush from like a piece of media for such a long time and the only problem i have with it though it's made me feel incredibly old oh yeah because jordy i was playing this game and to me this is like a new game. I'm like, oh yeah, new graphics. Yeah, la, look at the blood. Oh, I'm, I'm finally playing something like relevant because mm. I've been playing like Dark Souls 1 for the last decade. And I had this moment where I went, wait, this game came out in like 2019 and I'm playing on the PS4. So I'm playing a five-year-old game on an 11-year-old piece of hardware and in my head it's recent. And it's PS4 just has been out for moment. 11 years? Yes, it has. Oh man, Duncan, what are you doing to me? I know, it's this whole thing where I just could have had this change of perspective. Because now I'm work, work, I'm trying to some guys who have, like, children. And it's like, when you're a kid, not getting the new console in, like, the first year feels like forever. Everyone's got the new console, you're not playing the new games, you're, like, completely missing out. <laughs> and now I'm an adult, I'm picking up something five years late. And it's like, yeah? I'm there, I'm with the kids? I was a little confused when you were like, I'm playing the new Resident Evil remake 2. And I think you're like, didn't... Didn't the remake of 4 just come out? Like, isn't that a hot thing? Geordie, I was still playing the remake of 1, like, only a couple of years back. And that first came out in, like, 2003. And I still think that's a beautiful game and <laughs> looks really good, so... But no books. Not us, Judge. No books. Few comics. Touched on Batman again. As you know, I'm a huge fan. I am getting a little bit fed up with it, though. Geordie, t- kind of when you, like, you love a thing, but if you overexpose yourself... You just start to see some of the tropes. And what starts out like, oh yeah, this is really engaging, just gets more and more grating as time goes on. And specifically when talking about Batman, it's the Batman that goes too far. You know, the vigilante <laughs> sure, yeah. who, who pulls the trigger. And when I first sort of read this, and I think it's like Under the Red Hood, great story, love the film. I was like, oh, this is a great idea. Let's explore this. And now I'm like, I literally read like The Batman Who Laughed. And like the Grim Knight, and now I'm going back and I'm reading. Literally, why would you do that? It it was free on Prime, <laughs> for Kindle Store. Mm, mm. And then I went from that thinking, oh god, that wasn't very good. Let's go and read some older Batman. And I picked up like Sword of Azrael, and the Avenging Angel, and it's like it's just the same plot again. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing again. Well, I think what you're realizing, Duncan, is that there are about five Batman stories. And they've been telling them for the past hundred years. There's not even like there's multiple stories where Batman comes up against vampires, like just actual vampires, and they've done it several times. Yeah. Oh gosh, Duncan, when are you going to understand that comic books are just an extremely limited medium where the creatives in charge are genuinely don't allow people to take bold, daring risks like that will literally get you fired being too inventive or creative or trying to do new things with incredibly valuable pieces of IP. I'm not going to go down quite that harshly, Geordie. I, I do think it is just testament that when you have a character that's been having stories put out consistently for like 
80 plus years at this point. Obviously, it's going to repeat. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think you're right. With the character of like Batman, this being this vigilante detective, there is kind of a finite amount of different plots you can actually have. And especially when a character is not allowed to change. Like you can't, again, damage to Batman IP is not just, oh, we'll kill Batman or we'll, you know, seriously injure Batman. How many times has that happened? No, the idea that Batman could ever fundamentally experience actual growth, move on, change as a person, is or and do that for a consistent, indefinite period is laughable. You're 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 a lunatic if you think that it would ever happen. Calling me a lunatic? I have hope, Geordie. Yes. yes okay, Geordie, what have you been reading then? If it's something a bit more cultured than me. <laughs> well, don't come on. Uh, but I have been reading um, another great detective i've had two um big uh i've had two reading projects i've been going through slowly making waves still through um best serve cold still enjoying that but i haven't finished it yet what i have been making my way through is for one thing the complete works of sherlock holmes i mean not the complete works like sherlock holmes didn't write anything uh sherlock holmes the definitive edition um i got it for free on audible I got 76 hours, all the Sherlock Holmes stories, read by Stephen Fry, for free. What, with like an audible token or just given away for free? No, no, just for free. Like, I just downloaded it. I didn't have to pay any money. I didn't have to pay a credit. I have two spare credits, Duncan. That never happens. That is absolutely incredible. I I suppose it's because it's in the public domain at this point. But you still think that if you've got a voice actor... Stephen Fry, no less, who has done amazing work, exactly. not only narrating his own books, but he did the Harry Potter series, Geordie, I'm sure you're aware, and that, he, Absolutely, his yeah. voice in those books just brings me straight back, like, so much of what he puts into some of those characters, particularly his, like, Hagrid, to me, I'm like, yeah, that that mm, is unique, mm. but anyway, sorry. And what's more, like, he will write, like, four words to a bunch of different Sherlock Holmes collections, so, like, before you start reading a study in Scarlet, he gives you an introduction to Sherlock Holmes and the story of a study in Scarlet. If you read The Hound of the Baskervilles, he writes a little essay ahead of time and then reads it aloud. Oh, that's... So, amazing value for money there. Like, 76 hours of Sherlock Holmes stories, and some of them even aren't racist, Duncan. That's crazy. Jordi, I know we've talked about this before, but let's say I went off after this recording and got that collection. What would be your starting point? Do, you, do I start at the beginning or pick somewhere in the middle? Definitely not. Uh, no, <laughs> I think the study in Scarlet is by far the worst uh, Sherlock Holmes story. I, I've never finished it. I've tried many times to read it. It's extremely boring. It is um, enjoyable. Oh, no, I have to confess to something extremely nerdy I did this week. But um, Go on. but I'll get back to that later. So, um, <laughs> but um, but I wouldn't start with a study in Scarlet. It has a good beginning, but it's it's not that interesting. And there's this huge side plot where they just explain how the Mormon Church happened. I wouldn't read that. I think that if you want a good short story, uh, the Red Headed League is really good. Uh, I finished reading that today. I read it when I was a kid, and um, it brought me back. And it's it's wonderfully weird and and a bit silly, and it has a nice sort of tone there. But I think the best starting point period is so obviously the Hound of the Baskervilles. It's really well written. He's completely in his element. I think it is. It's a classic for a reason, um, and it's very accessible. Oh, I'll be taking your recommendations away. To be honest, I don't actually even know what the original plot of The Hound of the Baskervilles is. Like, I saw BBC Sherlock. That's perfect. That's really I'm like, perfect. Well, this couldn't have worked in the original. So, very excited to find out. No, no, I am. Um... Geordie, you said you're no, just doing shameful. I'm reading through Sherlock Holmes, it really, um, you look back on the TV show Sherlock and you're like, what the fuck happened there? Like, I don't, whatever strange very a very strange show that it such a thing could be allowed to happen okay so the extremely almost unforgivable yes the thing i'm desperate to hear i was really bored i was really bored and so there's this thing duncan which intrigues me i i want to make clear i don't apply any ideological attachment to this i don't think it has any like any true value but it is intriguing it, it fascinates me a little bit um and that is the subject of anglish have you ever heard of this anglish 
Is this some sort of like pre-English language or like angles in English? Kind of. Yes, kind of. So it's a fascination of... So during the 15th century, Duncan, there was a thing called the Inkhorns, and it was um, it was this movement of British writers who were deliberately importing long, complicated words from the continent, words like conflagration instead of burning, because they thought it was more sophisticated and more in line with the, what was current and cool in literary circles to use these big, complicated words. So they deliberately imported them and started using them more and, and brought them into our parlance. And fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with that because languages change. But there is a movement of people who uh, who try to write things deliberately avoiding all French, Latin, and Greek words and just rely on words which are traditionally, like, pre-1066. I mean, at that point, aren't you better off just writing in a Nordic language? That's your point. Well... No, no, because the the idea is what if, basically it's like, what if King Harold beat William of Normandy? Like, what if England won? Like, what would that language look like okay. today? It sounds like and a so fun not project. only is it about, so not only is it about trying not to use words like conflagration, instead trying to use words like burn, but it's also about imagining how would language have developed. For example, like, if I went back in time to 1066, and I went over to them and I started using only words which are traditionally English and which are still used today, they still wouldn't understand me because they're using older versions of our words. So even using stuff like the, of, said, um, for, you know, uh, using the word for, uh, before, stuff like that, like, they wouldn't understand me. The language has still moved on. I've but always understood like... that. Sh- Am I right in saying so, Jordy? That like Shakespeare's time is sort of the the oldest you can go back and probably still get a conversation across. I mean, you can read Shakespeare plays and understand them. I mean, so yeah, that's Middle English. So Middle English Wait, is that can, Middle is... English or is no? That's not oh, Middle English. That's early modern that's the, English. That's early modern. That's basically that's why we mean modern. You can go back through modern. You're kind of you're good, and as soon as you get into middle. Unless you've studied it, you're kind of out. Yeah, that point. I can't read Chaucer. It doesn't make any sense to me. Some people apparently can do it, but I can't. Anyway, some people enjoy. This is such a sidebar, but some people enjoy, as an intellectual exercise, trying to write things. For example, there's a guy who does an article a day, a newspaper article only written in English. Like, for example, news news about a rocket to the moon. He had to write only using English words and sometimes having to coin new words. Like, there's no word for prime minister in English, so you have to say first thane. But I started, as an intellectual exercise, translating a study in Scarlet into English or a learning in Red, and it's a very strange, intellectually stimulating process. I mean... I feel like there should just be this online thesaurus somewhere that can just allow you to just be like, give me different words. I mean, you, there is, they, someone has tried to make a Google Translate version of it, but it's, um, and there is a dictionary, the English word book, but it's a lot of checking and, you know, checking your writing. You're, you're copying out the, the book and you go, okay, is the word pleasant? Is that is that English? I have to check. Looks for the etymology of the word pleasant. Oh, it's not. All right. Well, what am I going to use instead? I mean, I think I I don't like to do this normally, but I think I need to cut all of this because this is not conducive to our discussion. Absolutely not. I'm going to skip over the fact that I also read the prequel to Legends and Lattes bookshops and bone dust and i really enjoyed it i was going to go into more detail but i've wasted all our time enough already i think we really need to start talking about the ones who walk away from omelus thank you geordie the ones that walked away from omelus i hadn't heard of this before interesting this is very new had you obviously you, you yes i the table, but it's have been you, brought you up were... in some philosophy classes i did so this is quite interesting for me because i have a partner who did philosophy, he read philosophy at university. Mm. I was a member of the Philosophy Society at university. Mm. But with a lot of people, about a lot of subjects, never heard of this before. 
Interesting. And to be quite honest, when I put it to my partner, I was like, yeah, have you heard of this? Have you read this? She was like, it's no, uh, it's no, was it Plato's Cave? Sure. Like, I was like, well, yeah, but it's got so much. She's like, she, she's like, mm, it's got AI idea. Quite, quite scathing on that end. I was like, all right. That's very rude. I liked it more than rude. that. So what is the idea in this? Because I do think she is right in one sense that there is, there is an idea. Mm-hmm. And it's about what do you think idea. of this and so, right length for that five pages neatly done the ones who walk away from Omelus is is a short story proposing to the reader the idea of a peaceful city it is a basically a perfect city one where everyone is happy where all things in life are good where people are largely satisfied And all of this hinges on the idea that one person, one child, innocent child in specific, must be made to suffer. They are locked away. They are deprived of all love and devotion. They are starved and and deprived. And by this person bearing this suffering, everyone else gets to live happily. The massive majority of people in Omelus can live with this and do live with this, and they justify it, but a very small number cannot bear to. Either when they discover this for the first time, or later on in life, they make the decision to walk away from Omelus, and we as readers are not permitted to know where they go, or what they end up doing, but we are told that it is as impossible for us to imagine as the city of Omelus itself. And that is the easiest summary I've ever had to do for this podcast. Because as you say, Duncan, it's a very short, concise, focused story. Absolutely. The first two pages is just describing this sort of utopia city. And I guess the only real thing that lets you on early on the story is that the narrator keeps going, oh, I bet you can't believe this, that <laughs> you think this is outlandish. And then they go, don't worry. Let me tell you a horrible, dark secret, the cruel reality, and then it will be a lot more believable for you. It is, in some surprising way, when I was thinking about this, a bit like John Lennon's Imagine, in that it is a direct conversation with you, the reader or listener, proposing a thought experiment to you. You know, there is, it's very much in conversation. There's a very interesting part in this which really held my attention, where Le Guin is says she's willing to compromise with you. She says, basically, I understand that you may be struggling to accept this idea in of itself. So if you really want to, you can imagine that an orgy is taking place. You know, if that's what you need to imagine in order to sort of justify and say this place isn't quite so perfect, by all means, go ahead and do so. Which is interesting enough, firstly, because the idea of a utopia, a true utopia... I think is almost uh, a simplistic taken story. You don't read about that a lot because most stories revolve around conflict. So if it's perfect, where's the conflict? Yes, Um, this story, it does have conflict. You know, that's what it's it's fundamentally about. There is a problem in the world and we wouldn't be reading the story if that didn't take place. We're being confronted by that. But you're right, Duncan. You know, in order for this to be a narrative, to not just be... I don't know what you'd call it, a statement. Um, John Lennon's Imagine, if you will. (laughs) Imagine everyone living peacefully. I would say that, yeah, yeah, that that there is a source of conflict. That's what makes it into narrative as opposed to something else. And obviously that conflict is, I suppose in the story, it's the decision to walk away. But sort of externally Mm -hmm. as a reader, it's, it's you then whether or not your conflict of how to pass your kind of moral judgment yeah. onto onto the, the characters in this hell. And Geordie, I suppose the, the obvious question, the first one that kind of flies up is, uh, so, do you reckon you would walk away? I refuse to answer on the basis that it might incriminate me. My lawyer has advised me so. No, I mean, that's a very legitimate question to ask me, Duncan. I Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's one that everyone has to ask themselves upon reading it. I feel that I am at least intellectually honest enough to know that I can never really answer that question. Much like with the trolley problem, 
as much as I can try my best to express what I would do. I know that within the limits of a mere conversation held in a philosophy classroom, it doesn't really hold any true bearing on my moral caliber. It doesn't really hold any respect to what I would do as opposed to what I think I would do. It's useful as a term of discussion, but when it comes down to it, we all make moral compromises and we all make firm moral decisions at one point in our life. He says, speaking to a vegetarian. <laughs> no, that's, that's really good. And I'm glad you kind of brought it up because from my own standpoint, you know, I had to make a decision. I went, oh, there is, I perceive suffering here. It is remote to me. It's not in my face. I'm going to choose not to be a part of that. So it, that I think that's a really good kind of example. So I'm a, a mere vegetarian, greatest respect mm. to the full-on vegans. I will get there one day. It is my goal in life. <laughs> I am weak. Yeah, and I really and like said there. Yep. And speaking of that, you know, we are two people with different things because I also don't like the cruelty to animals that takes place in the you know takes place in in the the commercial world of butchery i feel like there are ways to eat meat ethically um there are ways to do so in a pre-industrial society but the industrialization of the way in which food is processed and farmed no i don't think it's ethical i think it's wrong and it's cruel but i still eat meat and i do that for basically selfish reasons i do that because um it helps me live a lifestyle which i enjoy one the eating of it and also the fact that i'm very much into fitness and I know that I will that a lot of my fitness endeavors will be thwarted if I don't have 0.8 grams of protein per one pound of body weight. And it's really hard to give that much protein if you don't eat meat. I'm really glad you said at the end there because I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. I'm like, uh, I wanted to film a film. It can be done. But I will admit it is more challenging. But it's way it more can. challenging. It's so much more challenging. Uh, for one thing, vegetarian protein powder is disgusting i mean i cannot talk to it i've i don't take um, protein powder either or i've never tried it but i'll take your word there but but that's also no point that's this decision where you're going well you know for my own personal enjoyment of my own experience i take this more decisions to link it back into this particular story and asking yourself well what would we do i really liked your point about like it's kind of pointless saying oh what i think i would do this because you can't really know what you do, I feel like, until you're in these situations. We'd all make different mm -hmm. decisions at different times. And to be honest, who knows? Could be anything as little. You might make a slightly different moral decision uh, first thing in the morning than you would laughing at night. It's, it's, I think it's a known, observed kind of fact. Again, not check this just before saying this, that judges are genuinely more lenient just after lunch. Mm, yeah. Like, we change what we're going to do based around completely, not saying arbitrary, but all these different factors going up and down. So good thing to put that kind of to bed. So then what we're really saying is, what do I think someone should do in this sort of right. scenario? It's like with a trolley problem. In huh? philosophy, we often talk about rules. We talk about what is an agreeable rule, something that reasonable people can agree is fair or is correct. So you've mentioned the trolley problem twice now. Just to, really simply, it's the idea that the trolley is a train, it's going down the track... And there's normally three people on the track, the train's on, and you're standing by the lever that changed tracks. You pull the lever, the train will go down a different track where there's only one person on. And it's that decision of, well, less people will die if I take action, but I personally would be more comparable by doing that. That's genuinely the outline of it. That's right. And there's multiple kind of variants as well, isn't there? I've heard ones where they go, oh, instead of pulling a lever, you have to push someone in front exactly. of the trolley and where they kind of mix it up. But it's generally as the how personally comfortable can you be even if you're ultimately saving more human life? Yeah, and the reason why we're bringing this up is that what we're talking about is utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is what's being discussed in The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas. Utilitarianism is a school of philosophy which says that the, the greatest good is the greatest source of good for the largest number of people. The course of action which benefits the most people is the most morally right one. Utilitarianism is a very flexible philosophy. 
it's a philosophy that can put you to do what you might consider an evil act if it benefits more people. You could do something that is completely morally reprehensible in many ways, but because it benefits a lot of people, maybe it can be justified. It's quite a appealing moral philosophy because it has clear rules in which you're allowed to be quite wibbly-wobbly, and it doesn't it doesn't believe in virtue in and of itself. Someone who believes in virtue ethics might say that living in Omelus is morally reprehensible. You can't be a good person whilst benefiting from the abuse of one other person because by being so morally compromised, no matter what you do, you're not being good. It's fundamentally based on an action which reasonable people would not consider to be good and true. So I think what this story in particular does so well when it comes to approaching this matter is that when we actually get to that bit in the later half of the story, we're talking even the halfway point or even just over, maybe in two thirds mm. of the way through, we're confronted with this very personal suffering. I think Le Guin does a really good job of really driving home that exact thing, that personal suffering. Yes. It, she does so well building empathy for this person who An is not being shown that person. by anyone else unnamed it kind of gives you that um kind of sensation obviously we, we don't really ever get told how this child is sort of selected but it kind of puts you in the like well it's great for everyone but if i was that one person in that dark room i would be against the system mm-hmm. i feel that's the only way i feel you could really kind of <laughs> anyone could really kind of justify this with like oh yeah this is good because one person suffering for a lot of people's benefit i'm like oh would, would you be okay to be that one person and mm. have to be. And the descriptions of the, the filth, the, the sores, there's a bit in it where the child's in the room and they're mops. They're basically in like a broom cupboard and they're terrified of the mops on the other side. And I think that was really nice because it kind of takes you back to this real childlike sense of fear, mm. of these innocent things. Dark. Shadows in the dark. You are making fear of things that aren't scary, but at the same time, it's something that, and this is my kind of feel of reading it, is that by having those sort of childlike fears, it makes you want to so easily comfort them. It makes you go, oh, yeah. I could step in here and just make that fear go away. That would be yeah. so easy to deal with this child and make them not suffer. And then so when no one is, it just goes, oh, it's a kind of sick feeling inside. Yeah, absolutely. There's a reason why uh, the person has to suffer in this. As you said, Duncan, there are versions of the trolley problem. There are different versions. Like, I'm sure there is a version out there where they say, you have three people on the track and you've got to switch over to the other track, but there's a child on the other track. I'm sure that's a, a pr proposal you could make. And Le Guin has definitively chosen that a child is the person who's supposed to suffer, someone who is fundamentally and truly innocent. And in terms of justification, she confronts the ways in which the people who remain in Omelus justify it to themselves. She talks about how people come up with what seem to be completely reasonable justifications. The fact that, you know, if you release that child today, and it should be made clear, removing the child from the basement breaks the spell. And I've used the word spell because that's essentially what's happening here. It's how you've got as in a fancy podcast. As in a lot of philosophical experiments, absolutes are in play. The child must be hurt in order for Omelus to prosper. The only way in which that makes sense is magic. So I'm going to say the spell. The spell would be broken. So people justify remaining because they say, well, if a child were released today and Omelus stopped being a utopia, a paradise, would... Uh, would that child even have a good life? For one thing, they wouldn't get to live in Omelus. Like, because Omelus wouldn't exist anymore. It would just be a place. It's, it's, it wouldn't be sustained to perfection. And, like, clearly, they've already... They're so emotionally gone. They are so uh, damaged that they would never experience a true, genuine, perfect life now. Or even a livable life. They're too imbecilic to really even appreciate, you know, a, a good life, to experience love. So they might as well just keep suffering, right? I mean, it's not an easy one, Jordi. 
No, it's from, not. It's it's the beginnings of that of dehumanization, and to bring you back to that, what you brought up at the very beginning with me myself being vegetarian, that's a very mm. classic example. You're dehumanizing. Obviously, in this character, we're actually dehumanizing uh, the character of the child, but you're taking away the reality of something else is suffering. You're saying, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It can't possibly experience joy and suffering the same way I can. Mm. So let's not worry about it. It's not like us. It's it's impossible for it to ever feel like us. So why treat it with the same dignity that we treat each other in our own groups? Mm. I mean, I would say it's a poor argument. Okay. Yeah, I I personally think it's, it's a poor argument, and to say what to oh gosh, it is harder to come prepare for philosophical debate. There's not even any characters. My notes normally are just character names. And we talk about events and how we like things are done. This is much more challenging. You know, you know, there are no characters in this story. There is no one named, not even the child. We've only referred to them as that because that's all we can refer to them as. And there's a reason for that. You know, the characters, the people that exist in the story, like the fiddler, um, you know, the, the person playing a musical instrument, the people on their horses... They are not given names because they are abstract ideas. They are the abstract people of Emilus, people who live happily, people who live contented, but have to know about the child. She starts off this story by um, by having to justify the idea that being happy is in some way profound. You know, she she talks about how people tend to be more fascinated by evil and want to tell stories about evil. Which is really interesting in a story which is about evil. You know, it's about an evil act being done. But it also lords the idea of happiness, that it is something worthy, and it is something that's worth talking about and writing about, which I appreciate a lot. Um, I think that is one of the things that really stands out about Ursula K. Le Guin, is that she's not abashed by... Uh, by the idea of goodness, that she can tell a story like The Wizard of Earthsea, which is, you know, it's quite simply about someone trying to become a good person, and she doesn't blush at that. So one of the things that, when we read it, I kind of brought up, saying, you know, this is, in some respects, the most mature book mm. I've ever read. It doesn't rely on... Because it's, in some respects, it's the same core concept, The Wizard of Earthsea. It's about overcoming adversity. But it frames it in such a more... I'm going to say ethical way, because it doesn't glorify... I'd say spiritual. That's nice. I'm going to stick with ethical. Ethical way, because it doesn't glorify violence. It doesn't glorify acts that cause harm. It, it, it outwardly kind of shows that committing harm is a bad thing to do. Mm. So my hero isn't going to do that on any level. And when they do try to do that, I'm going to punish them immediately to drive this message home. And that's kind of what brings us back here. It's, it's the causing of harm. And is that ever good? What I find interesting about this story is the ending. You know, um, it, it highlights how the ones who walk away from Omelus are not merely taking a step out of paradise. A step out of paradise is a certainty. You know what you're leaving and you know what you're not going to find you're not going to find somewhere that's perfect like Omelus. But it makes it clear that it's even more uncertain than that. There are no other cities which are mentioned. There is no indication that they know that other human habitations exist. It's not like this is an isolated but still connected to the outside world place. There might be nothing out there. The end of the story, she says that what is out there might be just as unimaginable as... Omelus itself. Does that mean that what exists out there is in fact not merely a difficult wilderness to live in, but is in some way even worse than that? Is stepping away from Omelus not merely choosing to step out of Eden, but suicide? So obviously, as the reader, we don't know this, and it's made it very clear the characters who take this decision also don't know this. So it's this also idea of would they they're rolling the dice they're going to say mm. do you know what whatever it is i will gamble because i no longer find omelis tolerable in in some respects i suppose it's it's about it no longer being a paradise for them 
Because to then sit there with guilt must be a level of suffering. That's right. Which they can't have in paradise. So they have to leave. Yeah, we've um we've only used a word utopia so far to describe Omelis. And I stand by that. I think that I can justify calling it that because it's written about a utilitarian utopia. But you could absolutely say that this is a dystopia. Many people do. I've seen it. They say that this is an example of an evil society, that it hinges upon the suffering of one person. I don't think I'm going to make a strong come down on either side of that because, again, it's complicated. I suppose partly of what we're trying to get across and something that's kind of put into the first half of this story is Le Guin kind of leaves it open to be like, you can populate this society with whatever you need for you personally Mm. to accept it as perfect because that's what's needed for this thought experiment to play out. Mm -hmm. But by the mere kind of idea of the child, you then go, well, it's almost an oxymoron then. It can't be a paradise. Or you need to put in another one and go, well, I don't understand because if everyone's super happy, if there's no adversity to overcome, is that a paradise? But one I kind of feel she, like... One thing she insists upon, you know, she, as you say, Duncan, she gives you, the reader, freedom to add and take away the things which you need to make it a palatable paradise. But there are a few things she insists upon. She insists that there is no war, there are no soldiers. And whilst there is a sense of victory in Omelus, there is no enemy overcome. So that's one thing she insists upon. The other thing is the child. Now, when I first read it, I actually took that war angle to be more playing into the world building, the fact that there's no one outside. I would strongly disagree, but yes, carry on. No, well, I'm saying that's what I... first did think Uh, when I was reading this now you kind of bring up in that sense I do suppose either it's the idea of there is it's sort of putting the idea out there that these people are committing no harm to no one else I think that's almost what's more important in that statement exactly that is exactly what I'm saying only one is suffering Mm -hmm. no wiggle room just the one what I find interesting about about as well is the way she talks about technology And that's something she's extremely flexible with. The only mode of transportation we hear about are horses. That's the only thing we talk about. Uh, In fact, one of the ones she proposes and then rejects is the idea that there is a king being carried around on a litter by slaves. She says there's no king here. That sort of leadership doesn't exist. It's much more anarchic. But in terms of technology, she said, yeah, they might have dishwashers. Who knows? Uh, that's, That's not really important. All you need to know is that they're comfortable. But there's still this slightly pre-technological feel to it. The way in which it's described, it feels extremely early 19th century. At least that's the image that's in my head. In fact, expand on that. Duncan, when you imagine Omelus, what, what does it look like to you? So for me, because we go to the horse racing and... I have very limited experience of horse racing, but when my uh, when my family goes there, I, I never go for partially ethical reasons as well. Sure, there you go. And so I should probably actually bring up later. I always imagine that everyone trying to invoke that kind of 1920s vibe. Sure. That's sort of early 20th century. That's sort of the look. And that's sort of what I, I get. It's that I always picture, I sort of picture the Malus as this sort of great gas... Gatsby-esque glamour. That's interesting. It's genuinely what came to my mind. That's interesting. To me, what came to mind is Ray Bradbury. You ever read much Ray Bradbury, Duncan? Fahrenheit. Anything else? Nope. Personally for me, Ray Bradbury will always be a writer of short fiction. Um, I'm holding in my hands Ray Bradbury Stories Volume 1. It's a collection of many, many short stories thumbing through. There's about a thousand pages of uh, short stories in volume one. So there you go. He often evokes this feel of what he feels is a good way to live. And when he pictures, he draws an image of that sort of society. It involves a lot of things like festivals. It involves a pre-high technological level. You get the sense that he appreciates a sort of city, but almost peasant existence. 
the fox in the forest in particular is a favorite story of his by uh, that I've experienced about people who time travel back from a dystopian Cold War future and have arrived back in an early 20th century Mexico. And they take part in this festival and they get to watch people running around being liberated and being free. And that has always stood out to me as this image of a Halcyon era. And imagined, of course, Halcyon era. So that is what I, the, the sort of image and the feel that I lay over Omelas. Okay. It sort of gives it a, maybe a greater sense of innocence. Yes. I well, suppose. innocence is not permitted uh, in this city, but in a sense, yes. All right, then. I suppose I like the fact that that's how I put there. I do believe when we gain these descriptions, it is left vague so that you can put whatever you want on it. I'm sure someone could very make a valid reading of this and imagine it to be a little bit more sci-fi, particularly architecturally. Often when I think utopia, I do think science fiction yeah, utopias, I'll be honest with I you. I do as well. That's sort of where I first go to, which is probably a logical fallacy. A hope, a dream, that it has to be in the future. Mm. I suppose, actually, when I put on more of the 1920s then, I'm. it sort of is actually invoking more of the this kind of emptiness, where I suppose your kind of version is a little bit more wholesome. Mm. Like, no, this is inherently good and nice, because that's what Legrin's saying. It has to yeah. be. For us to then work out whether or not it's justifiable. They're genuinely happy. Apart from the ones that aren't. Oh, God, Jordi, this is such a... See, as we're kind of going along, and now I've got kind of like two different kind of thoughts going off. One is the fact that I'm sure this is nothing on Le Guin, but you go, oh, if it's truly a utopia, utopia for the people. What about those horses? What's their existence? But I do think that's probably just slightly the times that the, the story was written. I'm not going to deep dive on that one. Well, the animal's right situation is here. It's probably whatever I want it to be, to be honest. That's what Le Guin has said. If you want to imagine that all those horses are freaking joyous of all hell and they're living their best life on the racetrack, to make this a utopia, believe that. So I think that is probably what I should take from it. Duncan, you, you've made a fair few moral arguments and you started the episode by saying, I'm the one who walked away from Omelas. So I have to ask you, I rather cowardly avoided it, but would you walk away from Omelas? I think I'm going to sound really up myself with my answer, Geordie, and I do apologise in advance. Geordie, in a way, I don't think that's really a hypothetical question. Okay. I don't think, I think, I know I wouldn't because I haven't. Yes. So, in many respects, given the society, the monster society that we live in, Omenis is a paradise because the pleasures of those people only rely on one child suffering. Mm-hmm. Whereas the society I currently live in relies on quite a lot of people suffering yes, and living exactly lives right. inferior to my experience. And I know that. And on a day-to-day basis, I do nothing. Nothing about it. I just took my shirt off to to say, yeah, look at me, I'm wearing a shirt from Taiwan. But apparently this shirt was made in Belgium, uh, which is really surprising. Uh, so apparently I accidentally made an ethical choice. But Jordi, it, it goes back to the same thing. I know there is unimaginable suffering out there. And every day, what do I think about? Warm hand for dinner. Yeah. I think about, mm, will I get that pay rise this year? I think about where I want to go on holiday. And we also make decisions which are based on the suffering of other people. Like, I tried to demonstrate by taking off my shirt, um, to make this a very saucy podcast, um, I'll take off my trousers next, to, to try and say, like, we purchase things that are based upon what we know. We just know are bad labour conditions. And we, we take advantage of the suffering of other people in far-off places. So, because we don't have to confront it. Really great example. My little brother pointed out to me the other day in the supermarket. Nescafe Coffee. Nestle, big love evil there. But yep. Nescafe Coffee. Two coffees next to each other. Both their brand. Both their gold mix. One mm-hmm. has the fair trade stamp on it. One doesn't. They're the same price. Yeah. Some people are either just care so little they're not going to observe which one has the stamp or mm-hmm. 
are some people actively buying the one without going now i can't enjoy my coffee unless someone suffered <laughs> and it's not that i make that decision it's that my society has made that decision my government has decided because my government could make certain things illegal they could say no you can't import from places mm-hmm. if they're suffering but we don't because that would make us suffer more maybe a lot we don't Probably don't know the entire extent. I don't think any economist could really map it out to a massive amount of detail. It would certainly yeah. change the dynamic. What does it cost dynamic. to live an entirely ethical life? It's an impossible equation. So in that respect, not only have I not walked away, if I was really being ethical, I should probably trade for it and go, yeah, only one. Mm-hmm. Which makes me feel really bad inside. Yeah, exactly. You know, we live in a... I can't believe I'd say it. We live in a society, Duncan. But we live in a society where making these these uh, informed ethical choices requires a lot of mental work. You know, you, to, to look into what is the most ethical course of action, it requires a certain degree of time and patience and a willingness to do these things for extremely little reward. If you choose... To not think about it, you'll experience a much better, happier life. If you just buy the pears that come from, uh, you know, come from Argentina. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of the other day. You know, I've I've expressed to you, Duncan, that I make a selfish choice to continue eating meat because it meets my my preferences. But I make completely arbitrary decisions about what I think is is morally justifiable. Like, for example, I don't eat avocados. Because you don't grow avocados in the UK. They have to come from the South America. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of gas being burnt to bring me um, avocados. So I cho- do choose not to eat there. So that's one ch- decision I made on top of a whole bunch of others that do contribute to climate change. I think that's a really great thing to bring up because you make that one decision. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, Geordie. And to be fair, I never finished my PhD in engineering and environment. I got to read a lot of damn papers about this these issues. Mm. Compared to the carbon footprint of your meat intake, I can I tell you now, those avocados, they don't mean anything. It does depend be a tiny. little bit, but I hear what you're saying. Like, obviously beef is a much bigger greenhouse gas con- contributor than, say, chicken. If a, a great kind of margin for this... If the US wanted to hit its carbon reduction goals, they'd have to stop eating beef. Mm. And that would be it. Yeah. Chicken, pork, keep doing that. Exact same quantities. Mm-hmm. Drive your cars. Absolutely fine. Just stop eating one type of food. Beef is really bad for the environment. I used to, I worked very briefly as an intern for a green publishing house. And so I had to write articles about how much greenhouse gas, you know, beef creates in opposed to others and for a period of time i did give up on eating beef because um it was a really easy choice which for some reason and i genuinely don't remember why i just didn't commit to like i could i could do that today stop eating beef actually i couldn't do it today because i i put purchased beef yesterday and i need to eat that because otherwise i'd be wasteful but i could do it tomorrow <laughs> to be fair jordy i'm just gonna say everyone who's thinking about going vegetarian great life decision it doesn't have to be the flick of a switch don't waste food Anyway, if you've already got things in your fridge, use it up. And I often say you don't need to be like, it's not all or nothing. You know, feel free, cut out one type of meat or just do it alternative days. It's, you know, it, it's not an all or nothing game. But at the same time, is it? Is either we're all doing it and society's going to change or we don't. And then we'll all suffer the consequences. Something that's interesting in, in talking about that right now, when talking about the ones who walk away from Omelis, is that obviously that is an all or nothing change, but it's also not one that has anything to do with society. You know, you leaving Omelis will never affect the child. Like you, in some ways, you're just washing your hands of it. You're saying, I am not going to live in a place with a tainted type of happiness. We're going to go out and experience something else. But you're not rescuing the child. Rescuing the child is, in a lot of ways, the most morally compromised position because you benefit no one. No one benefits from that. Not even the child benefits from that. I suppose the equivalent here would be 
you decide just personally you're going to live a vegan lifestyle mm-hmm. versus campaigning to change the law to make that compulsory. Yeah, I being mean, a, a protester. Th- there is something to be said about the fact that I mean, Duncan. To a certain point, when it we talk about how to live an ethical life, there are decisions you make yourself in the way in which you think about other people's behavior. I mean, like, isn't there's a there's a meme, isn't there, about how annoying vegans are because. You know, there's a stereotype that vegans want everyone else to also be vegan. Um, But you could, obviously, I think that most vegans just get on and they live their own life and they make an ethical choice for themselves. And you don't hear from them because you don't hear from people saying, I'm going to not tell you how to live your life and I'm going to do it very loudly. But to a certain extent, part of being ethical is just being ethical in of yourself. Like, it's just trying to do the right decisions because you want to be someone who does good things. And that's the end of it. So, Geordie, is that more ethical, though? Is it more ethical to go, listen, guys, I'm not going to murder this guy, but, you know, go ahead. To, you know, if you if you want, like, kill Dave tomorrow. I, I won't get in your way. You're going to have to be more I'm specific, Am I in a train right now? Um, yes. As you say, Duncan. The decision to not touch the lever, to run down three people because you refuse to take an action, that's a morally complicated question. Is it selfish to be... Is it selfish and wrong to try and be ethical and not take action? I mean, just kind of bring it a little bit more back on the fantasy side, this is something that I often... I think we've debated the past when we've been playing D&D. Yeah. I love having characters where you go, what's more ethically good? You know, because D has a very binary moral system, which is absolutely insane to actually work with. I think most people do ignore it. Yeah. But what's the what's the who's the ethical character? The character that doesn't do the bad thing to keep their own purity, or the character that compromises their own purity to do the thing that will save other people. I, I like being the character who, mm-hmm. who compromises their own purity to do what they see as the right thing. It's so much fun to play. But Duncan. You said the the F word, fantasy. Now, I picked the ones who walk away from a malus, kind of fired from the hip, just sort of picked it. I wanted to pick something short. Um, I knew this was short. I picked it. You challenged me before the start of this episode off mic to say, is this fantasy? I'd like you to, I'd like you to speak to that right now. So, is this fantasy... Now, I would say, Geordie, this does not have any of the clear, obvious traits of the fantasy genre. There's no dragon, there's no wizards, sure, sure. there's no magic in name. Well... I would also say that... Well... I'd also say that, you know, this could just as easily be, maybe... Could this not just be classified as sci-fi? It was published first in a sci-fi magazine. But... I think we've both come to this, and you mentioned it earlier, the idea of the reason why this child's suffering affects the city is never made clear you'd called it a spell so is that is that then more fantasy i mean the idea of a paradise sounds fantastical i have proposed to you duncan in the past that all i require for something to be fantasy is that there's a wizard in it is there someone who does magic yeah okay that's fantasy you know, we've had conversations around, is something science fiction or not? Is it fantasy? We apparently are people who care about that distinction. I don't think we, we're shy away from that. And we've had to come up with rules to decide what is fantasy and what isn't. Looking at this book now, the thing that makes it fantastical is the idea that, spontaneously, this city is made perfect by the suffering of some person. That is happening by magic. Often in philosophical philosophical thought experiments we rely on magic we have to say this must happen for this to work you know you can wave a magic wand and make this course of action happen should you wave that magic wand you wave a magic wand and tomorrow all the dictators in the world suddenly perish of a heart attack will you wave that magic wand Geordie? think about the consequences of this action I think, Duncan, and you can tell me right now if you think you're wrong, that purely from the point of view of the fact that this is a story, 
which it is. It's a narrative. And it relies on magic in a way that makes it fantasy. I mean, it's certainly not a crime drama. Mm. And I wouldn't say there's any singular eminent that I would want to call it sci-fi. So I'm going to I'm gonna agree with you. I'm going to shake hands on this one and say, yeah, this is sufficiently fantasy. <clears throat> Duncan, you have thought too quickly because I don't think this book is fantasy. What? No, yes, yes it a, is, Geordie. We've what? literally just agreed. No, 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 no. And there's a reason I've held something back. From the point of view of the fact that it is a story and the fact that it contains a magical spell, it is fantasy. But no, I don't think this book is fantasy. And I think it for a very specific reason. This book doesn't have a Go genre. Go on. This book doesn't have a genre. For one thing, it's not a book. But its story doesn't have a genre. It's a thought experiment. That's what it is. It is no more fantasy novel than John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine all the people. Blah, 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 blah. I should have listened to that song before this episode because then I could have quoted some lyrics, but I have forgotten them. The fact that we are being presented a world that is inflexible, that is not posited to exist, but is where we are permitted to change ourselves, I think that is so fundamentally antithetical to what fantasy is, which is the creation of a space in which magic exists, which we then experience as readers, as observers, I don't think that this is fantasy for that reason. The fact that we are as much an author to to a certain extent, I think that kind of deprives this of being fantasy. I feel like you you laid a trap for me there and I just blundered straight into it. I didn't. Uh, Listen, you didn't have to blunder. (laughs) So, okay, I hear you. I hear your case. You're saying that there really isn't enough substance here to give it the the lofty moniker of fantasy. That's not remotely what I'm saying. Um, but I do think you're being a teeny bit facetious there. <laughs> okay, a little bit. Okay, and I, I do see that that counterpoint. If someone wanted to top this on the fantasy pile, I would look at them a bit oddly, but I wouldn't move it off. But I do think that this is its own drama that probably doesn't sufficiently even get its name because it doesn't need to you're not going to find this in a section of waterstones well probably you are it's going to be under philosophy well it it comes in a book called the 12 somethings of the wind but what section do we put it in the librarians of the world must know i mean the book it comes in is a collection of fantasy stories like there are two stories in there which are part of the earth sea verse but i don't but also there are sci-fi stories in there so this is a a story that was published in a science fiction magazine, collected in a fantasy book story collection, housed in the philosophy part of the library. Okay, I think we've got that nicely summarised. Duncan, if, if that book contained a crime drama, would it this whole story be a crime drama? Would every book story in that collection be a crime drama? Oh no, probably not. That would just be what that crime drama was. And oh god, okay, fine. You've you've beaten me back on this. Yes, I, it's but, not fantasy. No, it's but not. Maybe it is. I, I, I and that means Duncan. I fucked up. <laughs> I made a mistake. I, I, I was over hasty. I should have thought more carefully before I chose this. It's not like there aren't fantasy short stories. <laughs> yeah, because we there. reviewed a non-fantasy work on our fantasy podcast. And for that reason, Duncan, I'm going to award you a destiny point. I need to be punished for this. Yes. Ah, oh, came out on top there. Don't know how. You definitely rung rings around me in that conversation. <laughs> Duncan, happy with that. Could you please define for our audience what a destiny point is in case they've never come across one before? Yes, we have this lovely mechanism called destiny points. Whenever one of us does something to inconvenience the podcast, either by being late or or picking a book that clearly was a fantasy, or not finishing the book in question before our session, yeah. the other member of the team gets a destiny point. This is effectively a veto to push forward any book of their pick. Often we use it when someone wants to read a sequel, and as made clear at one time long ago, we cannot pick the sequel to a book that we ourselves selected. We cannot force the other through a series that they absolutely despise. This little destiny point. Except by using a destiny point. Absolutely. And when Geordie has another one, I'm sure we'll revisit the Scholomance series. I'm pretty sure I do have one. But you have four now. 
thing is, Georgie, I'm just too much of a, a kind of a, a literary butterfly. I don't like to settle too long on one series. I like to flick from tree to tree. That's fine, man. You can build up as many as you like, because one day you're going to use those to make me read all of the Wheel of Time. When you have 13 of those, then it will be a solid six months of just Wheel of Time. Oh, 14. Don't you forget the prequel. Right. (laughs) Fuck! No! (laughs) But not just yet, Geordie. I've got a different book picked for next week. Oh, actually, we should summarise our thoughts on this story first. That's how our format works. Geordie, what did you think? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is a really good story. Everyone should read it. It's um, It took me like 15, 20 minutes to read, and I feel really good for having read it. It's thought-provoking. It's beautifully written. My goodness. She's so fantastic as a writer just for vivid descriptions. Like... This story has, as Duncan has said, no characters, no real narrative per se, like no A to B to C, but it's just enthralling. I quite agree. And I think particularly for me, it's about the sort of the the cost reward equation on this one. This is so short. You could easily read this while sat on the loo. It's. It, I'm not saying that the philosophical point made is necessarily the most sat on the loo if you are constipated. I mean, I mean, maybe I don't know, Duncan. Does it actually take you that long to? Never mind. I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't think someone who maybe has actually so philosophy and hasn't read this, but you know, this is not necessarily an idea that is so out there it will blow your mind. But it is beautifully delivered, and I think that's the real key point here. Someone can come up to you and just go, "So the trolley problem, mate." But to have Le Guin both described the beauty of this utopia in a wonderful you know, paragraph of language and then really hammer home that close empathy with the one individual. And I think that's what the real beauty here is because with the trolley problem, they can mm. say, oh yeah, but what if it wasn't a personal lever? What, what if it was a child or what if you had to push at someone? But you don't feel it as much as when it's delivered the way Le Guin has delivered it in this book. When you really get down to the... I can't say the suffering, but that is, it's beautifully described suffering to make you feel empathy. That works. I totally agree, Duncan. Uh, Don't eat Fiverr for two weeks, sit on the toilet and read this story. All right, maybe more on your, like, your your tea break at work. Get it out. Wonderful. All righty, Duncan. What are we doing next time? Are we doing Plato's The Cave? We certainly are not. I am not going anywhere near this heavy. I say I might be mistaken. So I, Geordie, I really wanted, we spoke to you at the start of this year how we wanted to get back on. We want to hit some big hitters. We want to take some big names of fantasy that maybe have eluded us for a while. And as you know, like I said, I like to be that little butterfly. I like to flicker from series to series. Well, this is a book that I know you're reading. And so I'm going to delight you with it. Because, oh, Geordie... I want to read this book because I have read more in the series, but I haven't read this one. And a bit, it's sort of an inverse of Murtagh. You haven't read the rest of the series, but you are reading this book. I'm sure you know it. Joe Abercrombie's Best Served Cold. That's very kind of you, Duncan. I'm very surprised you're not making me read The Blade itself, which is the first book in the series. I didn't realise when I started that it was actually connected. But yeah. And I'm not doing that. Now, I'm going to say now, I think The Blade itself is an amazing book. I've read The Blade itself, the original First Law trilogy and The Heroes. So that's where I stand. But it has been said, I believe by the author or by the publisher on his behalf, that you can read Best of Cold as a standalone. So I certainly am and I'm enjoying Let's it. see how the dynamic works, particularly in comparison to Murtagh that we read earlier this year. Please go check out the episode where Geordie was deep in the series and I came to it fresh. Bit of a role reversal, let's see how it pans out. Yeah, that's true. I what a what a turn of fortunes, Duncan. You've really you've really put it. I do think that it's gonna be a lot more successful in uh, in this case. But... I personally think that Sure Abercrombie is a much more accomplished author than uh, Christopher Fellini is, but we'll, we'll see. Maybe I'll maybe I'll reassess on the revisit. We shall see. Well then, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I don't have that much of best good, best served cold to read, so it's going to be an easy two weeks for me. Well, come to the table with all your extra reads next time, Geordie. I'm sure I will fit nothing else in. So, 
Wow, what one experience this one has been. I, I genuinely feel more confused than ever. I, I don't know if that we did good. <laughs> I'm genuinely looking back on everything I said, and I'm like, do I even agree with half my statements anymore? Well, Duncan, if you were completely wrong about a matter of philosophy, which is very possible to do, I'm sure folks can let us know. And they can let us know on our Instagram, is this just fantasy podcast? Podcast? Yes, good. I did it. Normally Duncan does this. Or you can reach out to us at our Gmail, is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com. Or don't tell us we're wrong through the rating system on iTunes. Just give us five stars. If we were wrong, do the ethical thing and just keep that to yourself. <laughs> if we are wrong, do let us know in words and break down your argument because I love to hear other people's thoughts. I'm sure this has been well debated. Not by raising the show. That's sacred. I'm sure this has been incredibly well discussed in philosophy casters all across the world and I'm sure there are much more deeper, impactful and intelligent arguments about it than what me and Geordie have come up with. But next time we will be back in our lane talking about actual fantasy novels. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I've been the one who walked away. Duncan Nickel. So long. Bye.